Well, good morning. I want to put in a plug before I begin for the daily devotional that starts today. It'll be every day this week, but you need to sign up for it if you'd like for it to come in your inbox. And so you can do that either at the ridge.church slash holy week, or else you can go online and there's a place where you can uh, punch the button that says devotional, and then you can sign up to receive that in your inbox. But it's a way to just prepare our hearts for what God's going to do on Easter Sunday. Toward the end of um, Jesus' ministry, he asked his closest friends, his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they responded, well, some say you're John the Baptist, you know, some say that you're Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, I don't know if you've ever read that and the thought came to your mind, why on earth did everybody think that Jesus was some dead prophet? I mean, everyone that was mentioned there was someone who was already dead. Even John the Baptist had been beheaded. Who do the people say I am? Well, you're like John the Baptist, just lost his head, or, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets, or whatever, Elijah. Why on earth did they go there? Why didn't they recognize him as the Messiah? Why didn't they, maybe at the very least, view him just as a regular prophet? Instead, they, they, they went to this list. It's just kind of odd, isn't it? But as I reflect on it, I, I think I understand why they did that. They recognized that Jesus was a Messiah, or I mean, sorry, a prophet. They, they, I think they knew that for sure, but they realized that he was a lot more than that. I mean, they said about Jesus, no one has ever done the things that he did. And I think they were looking at Jesus' ministry, you know, and his teaching and the miracles he performed. They were just amazed by it. And they thought, well, he's certainly a prophet, but, but he's not like any prophet that's ever come before. He seems like doubly empowered. Like maybe a, a prophet of old who was sent back by God that now has this extra power to be able to do it. And so that's kind of where they landed on this thing, which again, I think is just a little bit odd. But they got it wrong, who Jesus was. I just think that they realized that there was a supernatural element to his power. And then, of course, Jesus asked the question of his disciples, well, then, who do you say I am? And, and Peter was the one who spoke up, and he, he spoke words that were not his own. God had given him those words. It's, it's probably one of those situations where P, Peter answered the question, and then he said, what did I just say? He said, you are the Christ, which is the... Greek form of the word Messiah, the Hebrew word for Messiah. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, both of these answers are really profound, and Peter was right about it. But to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah standing in their midst was kind of a big deal. I mean, they'd been waiting for their Messiah for 2,000 plus years. Hundreds of Old Testament prophecies pointed to the Messiah and to realize this is the Messiah here. I mean, at that moment, I would have wanted to go on a, like a three-month sabbatical and just go to a cabin someplace and read the Old Testament and find all those verses that talked about what this Messiah was all about so that I could learn who this really was that was standing in my presence. It was remarkable that this could actually be the Messiah, and of course he was. But then Peter also said he was the son of God, son of the most high God. Now, I hope you understand that that's a, that's a statement of his, his deity. To call someone in biblical times the son of so-and-so 
was to say that this person has all the characteristics so they come from that person. And they were acknowledging, or Peter was acknowledging here that Jesus indeed was not just the son of God, but God the son. We, we, we kind of, or they used the term in, in the similar sense that we might if someone were to say to me, you are Tim, son of Ken. My dad's name was Ken. His real name was actually Ralph. He just didn't like it, so he took his middle name, Ken. And it wasn't even Ken, it was Kenyon. I don't think you like that either, but <laughs> it doesn't sound quite as good though, Tim, son of Ralph. But anyway, you know, I resemble my father, and my brothers do as well. I remember one time that my, one of my brothers was visiting, and he was walking away from me, and a friend of mine came over, and I don't think this friend even knew I had brothers. But as my brother was walking away, I said, oh, is that a brother, one of your brothers? And I said, well, how did, how did you know? You didn't even see his face. He said, well, he walks like you do. <laughs> I realized all of us must walk alike, you know. Maybe we waddle, I don't know what it is. But we resemble our father. And when you say someone's the son of so-and-so, you're saying you have the characteristics of that person, and that's what they were saying about Jesus. Now, if we brought the question to today, and if you were to go into a public place where there were people around, and you were to ask people today the question, who was Jesus? And of course, we realize it was and is, because he's alive, but who was Jesus? I wonder what answers we would get. I think, I think one of the more popular answers would be that he was a great moral teacher. I think people would say that he was the founder maybe of Christianity. Of course, both of those statements would be true, but we recognize that Jesus is, is, is significantly more than that. Those two answers barely scratch the surface of who he was. Many would acknowledge that he was a miracle worker. Some would say, well, he was a prophet. I think some people you'd run into, not many hopefully, would say, well, actually, I don't think there ever was a man named Jesus. More and more, I've read articles about that where people are saying, well, there was no historic Jesus. I try to be respectful of people that have different perspectives than I do, but when I hear that one, I, frankly, it's really irritating because it's so ridiculous to suggest that over two billion people on the planet that have some attachment to this Jesus are believing in someone that didn't even exist, that was never born. But this belief is one that was even around after Jesus rose from the dead and returned to heaven. It started circulating that he hadn't come in the flesh. John wrote about this in 2 John 1, 7, one of Jesus' closest Disciples, he was talking about false teachers and he wrote, many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. But people have different answers about him. Some might say he's the Messiah. I wonder how many would say that they really understood who he was. And who would you say that is if the question now were turned on you? What would our answer be? Who is Jesus Christ? And I think a top answer would be something to the effect Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into this world to save this world. Or he's the Son of God and God the Son who entered into this world so that he might become the Savior of this world. That's who he was. And I believe that our... Eternal destiny rests on a proper understanding of who Jesus was and is. 
Because unless we understand who he was and is, we will not put our trust in him, which is essential for eternal life. And Jesus himself even said that. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, no one will come to God except through me. He was claiming to be the one door through which you must enter if you want to meet the Heavenly Father. It's through Jesus Christ. And I want to talk about who he is today and having a, a, maybe a clearer understanding. It's going to be this morning a little bit theological, but the main two points I want to make here this morning are that one, Jesus was completely and fully man. In every single way, he was a man. And second, he was and is fully God. And that both elements of this are essential to the story. If Jesus were not one of Either of these, he couldn't save you from anything. Both of them are important, as we'll see in a minute. And both of these things are things he alluded to as he was hanging on the cross, dying in our place and for our sin, as we'll see in a minute. Now, we've been doing this series titled Famous Last Words, and we've been talking about what Jesus said as he was hanging on the cross, dying in our place for our sin. And let me briefly summarize what we've talked about so far, the first week of the series, I talked about the fact that Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. I believe he was referring to the whole crowd, everyone that was there. In fact, I am of the opinion that if Jesus had not prayed that prayer, judgment from God would have come immediately. They just crucified the Son of God. But Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And I think judgment was withheld for almost another 40 years. And then it was in 70 AD that the temple was destroyed and Israel ceased to be a nation. I think it held off that judgment, but it was a statement of forgiveness. Forgive them. And then Jesus said to the guy next to him on the cross, a criminal, probably a murderer like Barabbas, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. And I, I love both of those statements are about the forgiveness, which is what the cross is about how God wants to provide forgiveness for the sins of the world. And then we talked about the fact that Jesus said to his mother, behold your son. And he said to John who was standing there, behold your mother. One of the last things that Jesus did on the cross was to care for his mother Mary's welfare. And so standing at the base of the cross was Mary and a couple of Jesus' aunts were likely there and Mary Magdalene and then one of the disciples, John, was there. I don't know where all the others were. I know they had fled at one point. And Jesus, looking down on the cross, looked at his mom and speaking about John, he said, there's your son. And then speaking to John, he said, there's your mother. And tradition has it that Mary moved in with John and for the next 11 years, she lived there before she passed away. Now, after Jesus said these first three statements, darkness came over the land for three hours. Jesus was silent. I think God was silent. It's possible not a word was uttered by God to anyone in this world during that three-hour period of darkness, an indictment of God. And then, at the end of that three hours, at three o'clock, right before Jesus passed away, he said four more things. I talked about one of them last week. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Made the point, Jesus was forsaken so that we could be forgiven. He was forsaken so we wouldn't be forsaken would be another way to say it. And then Jesus said two things we're going to look at here today. He said, I am thirsty and Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And I want to suggest here today that the first statement here 
is a reflection of his humanity. It demonstrates that Jesus was fully a man. But the second statement, as we'll see in a minute, is a reference to his deity, and both of these are important. And then next week, Easter Sunday, I want to close up with just the one word in the Greek language. It's three words in English. It is finished. In the Greek language, to telestai, it means a lot more than I'm done here. It means a lot more than that. But today I want to focus on these two statements here that Jesus made. I am thirsty and father into your hands. I entrust my spirit. My takeaway today is this though. Because Jesus was and is fully God and fully man, he's able to take care of all of our physical and spiritual needs. Because he was both. He was in every way a man. He was in every way God. He's the perfect solution, the perfect answer to whatever we're facing, whether it be physical in nature or spiritual in nature whether it be the needs that we have or eternal life, whatever it might be, Jesus is indeed the answer. So let's look at the first statement where he said, I'm thirsty. It's found in John 19, 28 to 30. We read after this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was sitting there, so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Now, I talked about the sour wine last week, but I want to throw in maybe a correction here today because when Jesus was hanging on the cross, if you look at the gospel accounts, you realize that people offered him something to taste or drink on several occasions, not just this one right here. And so most of the time, you know, sometimes it's the crowd that was offering him some sour wine. He was up there for six hours. And as I talked about last week, the sour wine was kind of this cheap wine mixture that the soldiers used to drink. It actually had egg in it, and it just sounds kind of disgusting, but whatever. They offered that to him on a couple of occasions. One time it was a soldier that was doing it. But on another occasion, and I put these two together last week, but they're not together. On another occasion, they offered him something else which was more like a, like a narcotic. And it was that that Jesus refused to, to partake in. He didn't take that. When he realized what that was, he did not take of it because he wanted to endure the full brunt of the suffering. He didn't want to dull the pain. He was dying for the sins of the world. He wanted to go the distance. But he didn't taste the wine. Now, Matthew says he didn't drink it, but he tasted it. And you say, why did he taste it then? Well, last week I talked about the fact that it was fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, but it was more than that. I think his, frankly, his mouth was so dry that I don't think he could have uttered the last four statements without it. He was wetting his whistle as the expression goes so that he could say the last four things that he needed to say. Now, these seven statements come from the four different Gospels, but again, no Gospel has all seven of them, and so you put it all together, and, and that's why sometimes the order, you wonder which one was the last thing he said, and the Gospels aren't real clear about that because they don't all include everything he said. But anyway, some people do question the humanity of Jesus Christ, whether he was a man or not, and I think that raises a question when he said, and our focus here on this verse is the fact he said, I'm thirsty. I'm just making the point that that's what a, a, a normal man or woman would say if they were thirsty. It was a reflection of his, his humanity. And there are 
places throughout the Bible where Jesus' humanity is abundantly clear, but some would say, why would you even question his humanity? And all along, there have been heresies about Jesus and this gospel message. And one of them was that they believed back in, in after Jesus' day, the early church, there were groups that believed that the flesh of humanity was evil and the spirit was good. They recognized that a person has flesh and spirit. There's a material part and there's an immaterial part. And they concluded, like some of the Gnostic groups concluded, that the flesh was evil. And as soon as they arrived at that conclusion, then they thought, well, Jesus couldn't have actually had flesh because he was good. And so they denied the flesh of Christ. I want to make the point that the devil is serious about attacking every single element of this message called the gospel of the good news. They attack the fact that he was a human, that he had flesh and blood. They attack the fact that, that he was God. They attack the fact that he even died on a cross. There are groups today, Islam does not believe Jesus died on the cross. They think a switch took place. It was Judas. Because a good person like Jesus, a prophet like that, would, would never end up on a cross, is, is their reasoning. There are people that don't believe he rose again from the dead. And all of these elements are essential to the gospel story. They all come together in this message that Jesus pr provides eternal life for us. But all these elements have to be true. And the devil goes after every single one of them. Even the statement that he's the only way. One of the most popular notions today is you can come to God in any way you want, even though Jesus said he's the only way, even though Paul said there's in salvation and no one else. It's through Jesus because of who he was. No one else was like Jesus. And no greater cost has ever been paid. He's the only answer, the solution. But it mattered that Jesus Christ take on flesh and blood. I want to explain why in a minute, but we recognize, of course, that Jesus was physically born into this world as a baby. Jesus would have worn the equivalent of an ancient diaper. It's kind of hard to imagine. He would have made messes. And I've said before, I, I disagree with just one line in the Christmas carol, Away in the Manger. It's a wonderful carol, so I'm not... I'm not speaking against it, but one of the, the, the verses goes this way. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. Yeah, right. He was a baby. He kept Mary up at night. He understood what it was to be hungry. He understood what it was to be thirsty. He experienced betrayal and he felt it. He experienced sorrow as he stood at the, the tomb of Lazarus, and it goes on and on. He knew all about the pain and suffering of his own stuff that he went through. As he was whipped and beaten, as he was nailed to the cross, as the father, his own father, turned away, and he felt that moment of what felt like betrayal. Why have you forsaken me, God? Why have you abandoned me? He felt all this because he was fully a man. But why, why does it matter? Well, it's because it's the only way he could save us, is to take on flesh and blood. And there are two practical applications to the fact that he was a man. Two, two practical things that we can look at in our own lives. One is that because he was a man, he can relate to everything you and I go through. I love that. In Hebrews 2.18, we read, for since he himself was tested and has suffered, he's able to help those who are tested 
You know, other verses say the same thing, that because he endured all that he did, he's able to sympathize with your weaknesses and all the things you go through. I love this. Regardless of what it is that you're facing, he knows what it's like. Not theoretically. He went through it. He experienced literally everything you do. He knew what it was like to be tempted, real temptation. It was really hard to say no to. He understood all of that and and in these little ways and big ways that we can turn to our God. As I was preparing this, I was thinking of one of the little ways and I don't know why this illustration came to my mind but I realized at the time it was kind of a big deal for me. I mentioned a couple months ago that uh, I I co-led a team up to Bowling Green, Ohio to start a church near the campus of Bowling Green State University. It was like 1982, like 100 years ago. It's a long time ago. And uh, there were a group of eight of us And our strategy then was the same strategy I had when I came here. We wanted to start a campus organization so that we could uh, meet on campus, we could meet college students, we could share the gospel, we could have Bible studies, but basically we could use the university facilities. And then at a certain point, our plan was eventually we'll, we'll move out and actually become a community church. That was our strategy back then at Bowling Green as well. And when we went up there, we found out that if you wanted to start a campus organization, all you needed was to have one person in your group who was a student, just one, and they didn't even have to be a full-time student. That was very different than WVU. When I came here, they said, you have to have 10 full-time students, you've got to have a faculty advisor, and they had all these rules, but up there they said, just find somebody that'll (laughs) say they're with you, sign the paper. So I became a student. I took one course, and I thought the course would be no big deal. I took softball. I didn't didn't want to be studying all the time. I thought I need to take a course where I don't have a lot of homework and this and that. I just need to be a student so that I could be the first president of BGSU Bible Studies and get the organization started. And I thought, well, there's just nothing, you know, this this will be a stress-free course. It was not. It It was... It was very stressful. The reason it was stressful was for two reasons. Number one is for some odd reason, all the football players decided they wanted to take softball that summer. I mean, it wasn't all of them, but I mean, I walked in and there were all these muscles. Everybody, you know, almost the whole class was football players and there was me and a few other guys and I thought, oh, and girls, but I thought, this is kind of scary. I mean, they're going to pound the ball. I mean, they just look so strong and everything. I just envisioned them just just burying me with the ball. But the second thing is that they, for some reason, the team captain put me on third base. I thought, why would you do that? You know, when, when I was growing up, the best players were always in the infield, which meant I was never in the infield. I was always in the back, you know, somewhere where the ball, you know, you can almost sleep back there, you know. They put me on third base because... That, that, that's called the, the hot corner. And, and I hated it. I wasn't good at, at baseball or softball, and so I hated being there for two reasons. One is that I thought I'm going to let down the team. Ball's going to come my direction. I'm going to miss it, or if it comes to me, I'm not going to get it all the way to first base. Got to really throw it all across there. I just wasn't good at, at baseball. But the second thing is I, I didn't want to die. Because I'm just these people just pounding that ball right at me. I prayed a lot. And you know, it, 
it really encouraged me to know that, that God and Christ understood that they were listening, that they even cared about something like that. As little as a thing is, it, as it was, that, that, that Jesus understood everything I was going through. Even, again, it's a little thing, just a little fear or whatever else. Every single day I had the class, it's like, oh, Lord, I don't want to do this, and I'd stand there. But there's nothing so little that we can't pray about. I remember a time once where I was playing golf with a, a young man that I had led to faith in Christ and somehow the subject of prayer came up as we were walking along and, I, and we were talking about, can you pray about anything is what he asked me. I said, yeah. And he said, you mean that you could pray about your golf game? Which I, I was careful about answering that one because if I said yes, he would say, well, it's not working. And I said, yeah, yeah. I mean, I said, there are times I've prayed when I, was, when I was playing with somebody that it mattered that I play well because our score, you know, together, whatever mattered, we were a team or whatever. I'd ask God to give me grace because I'm, I'm just not the best golfer either. And he said, oh, you've got to be kidding me. You'd never pray about something like golf. I said, yeah, yeah. He said, why don't you pray right now that you'll, you'll get the ball next to the hole up there. Now, we were at, I think it was called Meadow Ponds Golf Course. We were, it was a par three. And it was the hole, if some of you remember this, where you're at the bottom and there's a hill up here and the pin is up there and you just need to get it on the hill, but I've, I never got it on the hill. Because <laughs> you go over the hill, it goes too fast, it rolls down the back of the hill. Sometimes I went back and forth. I'm trying to chip it on, it rolls off this way again. I said, okay, well, I'll pray this time. And then I swung, I used my, I don't know if it was nine iron or chipping, whatever wedge I was using. It landed right next to the pin, and this guy's eyes got really, really big. He's like, I just couldn't believe it. I said, well, you can pray about anything big or little. It's because Jesus understands everything you're going through. There's nothing that you can face that he doesn't understand and can't relate to. And I love that because it means he can come alongside. But of course, the bigger, more important reason why the humanity of Christ matters is that taking on humanity made it possible for him to die for the sins of the world, which is why he came into the world in the first place. Now, this is a little bit uh, uh, of theology, and I think people go to sleep when you talk about theology. But, you know, when Adam sinned, uh, sin came upon all of humanity and with it came death because the penalty for sin is death and so it's why everybody dies. And the reason that this is the case is that Adam was the representative of all humanity and so what he did impacted all of us. I know that doesn't seem fair, but that's just the way it is. You have Adam's physical DNA. We're all part of Adam and Eve, but we also have his, his flawed spiritual DNA and that's just the way it is. I think a modern example this might be that the president of a country over there in Europe someplace is kind of attacking another country over there and getting his whole country messed up. He's just one guy, the president of the country, and all the citizens of Russia are suffering because of a decision this guy makes. But that's, he's the representative of the country, and that's what Adam was. And so... Adam and Eve sinned and sin came into the world and so Paul put it this way in Romans 5.12. He said, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all men 
because all sin, and so both death and sin spread to every one of us and it caused problems. But in Romans 5, we read that Jesus came to be the second Adam. He came to be the representative that would fix what Adam got wrong. Whereas Adam disobeyed God and sin came into the world, Jesus Christ was gonna live a sinless life. He was gonna obey his father. And so all of those who are associated with Adam die, but all of those who by faith associate with the new Adam, Jesus, experience the eternal life that he offers. And that's why he came into this world. And so in Romans 5, 19, just a few verses after the one I just read, we read, for just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, talking about Adam here, so also through the one man's obedience, which is Jesus, the many will be made righteous. Adam sinned and death came into the world. Jesus lived a sinless life as a man. He became our new representative And in his humanity, it was possible for him then to die in our place for our sins as well, which was essential to the story. You see, in the Old Testament, they sacrificed animals for the forgiveness of sin, but we discover, both in the Old and New Testament, that testaments that the sacrifice of animals can't save anybody. You know, the writer of Hebrews said, it's impossible for the blood of goats and sheep to take away sin. You say, why did they do it? Well, it it covered their sin until Jesus could come. But the animal itself could never save anyone. Why? Because it was an animal. It's not of the same order, not of the same species. We are created in the image of God. So no animal's death could accomplish forgiveness for you, which again, in the Old Testament, that's kind of how it worked. The one offering the perfect animal would walk away free while the animal would die. It would die in its place, you know, that that person's place. But this is why Jesus came to die in our place. He was human in every single way so that he could become the perfect sacrifice in our place and for our sin. And so the writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews 2.17. It says, therefore, he, referring to Jesus, had to be like his brothers, that's you and me, in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. What does a high priest do? They bridge the gap between people and God. That was the role of the high priest. He, Jesus, had to become like his brothers, like you and me, in every single way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. And then here's the key, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Propitiation just means to satisfy the justice of God against the sin of the world. Jesus Christ was satisfying God's justice by dying for the sin of the world. That's what the penalty required. The wages of sin is death. So Jesus died. And in taking on humanity, therefore, Jesus is able to help us with all kinds of things in life but he's also the only one qualified to be our savior, the one who died in our place for our sin. But there's another side to this that I want to just briefly touch on. Again, my takeaway is because Jesus was and is fully God and fully man, he's able to take care of all of our physical and spiritual needs. Most people don't struggle with the idea that Jesus was a man, but I think they do struggle with the idea that maybe Jesus was God. Was he really God? Does the Bible even say that? Well, of course, Jesus claimed it, In various ways, he said things like, before Abraham was, I am. He was using the Old Testament name for God there. He claimed to be God. 
His miracles were intended to prove he was God. He did things no one else could do except God. He commanded nature. You know, he was in a storm, he said, quiet, and it stopped immediately. He had control over nature. The minds of the disciples would have gone back to creation when God first spoke it into existence. He had power over death. Someone had been dead for four days. He said, come back, come out. No one had ever had such power authority. No wonder they wondered if Jesus was a a prophet who had died and come back again. No one had seen such things before. But the most compelling thing for me in in the past when I wrestled with the question, was is Jesus really God? Was and is. Is that he's our creator. And that's amazing. And it's taught many places in the New Testament. But one of the clearest is Colossians 1, 16 through 19. We read, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth. And this is talking about Jesus. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He even created the angels. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. He's the one that conquered death and rose again so that he might come to have first place in everything for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. If you're taking notes, two other passages that are real clear about this are John 1, 1 through 4 and Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Both make it real clear Jesus was the creator. And when you begin to think about this, our creator, the one who created you and me, is the one who died for us. It's quite remarkable. And it's the kind of God I want. You know, when I look at the gods that other groups have worshipped over the years, and I see their characteristics, the Roman gods, the Greek gods, and the Mayan gods, and different ones that sacrifice children, and all kinds of... When I look at their qualities, their characteristics, I think, I'm so glad our God isn't like that. We have a God that loves us so much as to die for us. There's no greater love than that. That's the kind of love he showed for us. But let's get back and wrap up with the story itself in Luke 23. Where do I get this deity of Christ from this? In Luke 23, 44 again, it says, it was now about noon, darkness came over the whole land until three because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. I'm just making the point here that Jesus had the authority to dismiss his own spirit. He had the authority to say, okay, I think everything's done here. I'm coming home. It's a reference to his deity. Wearsby, Dr. Wearsby puts it this way, his death was voluntary. He willingly dismissed his spirit What we know from the rest of Scripture is that no one took Jesus' life from him. He gave it. And he had the authority to raise it up again. We read in John 10, 18, no one takes it, my life, from me, Jesus said. I lay it down on my own. I have the right to lay it down. And I have the right to take it up again. And I'm saying that that's a right that belongs to God alone. And Jesus was God. He had the authority over the moment of his death. He had authority over his own resurrection. Of course, the rest of the Trinity was involved as well. But Jesus, being God, had authority over this. And by the way, his statement on the cross, again, like some of the other ones, most of the other ones, were, was prophesied. Again, proving to me that the Bible is the word of God. Psalm 31.5 
Into your hand I entrust my spirit. You redeem me, Lord God of truth. And so he's quoting from the Old Testament. Why does it matter? Well, two reasons. One is because he was God, he could live a sinless life. It's the only way he could live a sinless life in his flesh. His God was his father, his mother was Mary. He wasn't born the normal way. Every other person who's ever been born since the beginning of time was born with a sinful nature and they would sin. Everyone has sinned, everyone who's ever been born. And they start early. But Jesus never sinned, why? Because he was fully God and fully man. So he could live a sinless life, making him qualified to be our savior. But second, because he was God, he could die for all of us. You see, if he were just a man, he could only die for one person. Like, if I had managed somehow to live a sinless life, and we were standing on judgment day, and you were a sinner, but I had never sinned, I might be able to volunteer to take the penalty for you. But I could only do it for one person, a man for a man, but because Jesus was God, he could die for the sin of the whole world. And so because Jesus was and is both fully God and fully man, he's able to care for our physical and our spiritual needs. So applications here today, one again, as I just, I'm trying to point people to Jesus throughout this season of Easter to say he is really the savior of the world, but it requires you turning to Jesus, putting your trust in him. God loved the world in this way. He sent his son that whoever believes in him, whoever makes the risen Lord Jesus Christ the object of his or her trust, that person is given the gift of eternal life. That person is adopted because you can't earn this thing. It's only something God can give you, but it requires putting your trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. If you already know Jesus Christ here, though, I want us to understand that, that Jesus can really understand everything you're going through and to learn to turn to him. It could be the fears that you have. It might be the needs that you're facing. It could be health concerns. It could be family concerns. You know, financial issues you're facing. Whatever it is that you're facing. When I was growing up, there was a song that I used to love that we would sing in our church. It was called, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And this was my recollection of the words, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory in his grace. I just want to point you in his direction because he's the answer to both things, the spiritual stuff and the physical stuff as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing love, again, that you've demonstrated to us in sending your son. This is a plan that we would never have thought of that we, O oh Lord, had corrupted our way, but you sent your sinless son to die in our place for our sins so that through him we could have life. And not just eternal life, but Jesus said, I come that you might have life and might have it abundantly, that through Jesus, your son, we can experience an abundant life because he knew what it was to be a man. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.